welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? David, I'm great, thank you. We're face-to-face uh, -face for the time being. The, Who time, knows how long the, that will continue? Yes, so. <laughs> we, 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 the future, of course, is, is not our area of expertise, and, and particularly this future seems to be particularly uncertain. Uh, right, so in the past few weeks, we've seen headlines about inflation. Uh, something that has not been uh, part of the, the public discussion uh, for most of the past 40 years, really. Uh, and concerns about inflation have, have, have reached the front page and are now in discussions in Congress and, and in politics more broadly. So we wanted to discuss the history of inflation and how inflation has shaped uh, or lack of inflation has shaped American society over, over its long history and try to sort of make sense of this this current moment where inflation and inflationary pressures seem to be uh, on the table in a way they haven't been for for at least the past most of the past four decades. Yeah, and it's worth observing that this is uh, at the moment not just a U.S. problem, but inflation's at a kind of ten-year high here in the U.K. Okay. and the yeah. Bank of England took steps yesterday to try and uh, address that. So, so this is a, seems to be a, a global phenomenon at the moment, but uh, we, as usual, are going to look at it in, in the U.S. context. David, what is inflation? I, I have a short uh, definition from the New York Times, but I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, okay, so uh, inflation, uh, at least the way I, and I think economists have struggled to define it too sometimes, uh, but a, a definition that I tend to use is, is simply an increase in prices and wages uh, over time. What definition, probably a more advanced def definition, have you got? No, that's a very good definition. Uh, according to a recent story in the, in the New York Times, uh, which was addressing this very issue over the past few days, uh, the Times defines it as, inflation is the loss of your purchasing power over time. Your dollar won't go as far tomorrow as it did today. Right. That's another way of saying what you said. said yeah. So prices, uh, basically what we see are prices rising quite quickly. Well, now I think we'll get to this when we, when we talk about the history of inflation. You know, inflation as a term today and for, for most of recent American history has had a, a negative connotation attached to it. And in part it's because Americans tend to think of themselves, as that quotation implies, as consumers. Mm -hmm. And that, 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 you know, the money we're worried about is the money that we spend to buy the stuff that we need because we don't make anything personally or we don't make much of the stuff that we use. Um, I think at other points in American history, if Americans have a different relationship to inflation, whether it had a different, both a different moral valence, but a different sort of economic value, especially when Americans saw themselves more primarily as producers, in which case prices going up isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, than it is today. Yeah, and one thing we'll, we'll see is that um, inflation is not always a bad thing, especially if you're a debtor. Creditors don't like inflation, but, but debtors do because it can be easier to get out of debt mm. or to pay your debts uh, in an inflationary moment. But, but uh, in general, certainly in, in, for most of American history, inflation is, has been seen to have negative consequences. Well, at least in the 20th century, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, Actually, I want to take a minute before we start and, and acknowledge my mother, uh, who's no longer with us, but, but it required me in high school. She said there are two courses that she required me to take. The high school didn't require me to take these. My mother did. Um, <laughs> one was Latin. 
and the other was economics. She said, both of these will serve you well in the future. And she was right, and I subsequently did economics in college too, I think. Uh, but but uh, I, I want to acknowledge uh, my mother for requiring me to do that, because I, I, in preparing for this episode, I found myself thinking about my high school economics course taught by Mr. Garrity. And Mr. Garrity, if you're still with us, thank you for, <laughs> the, thank you for your efforts. We weren't easy to teach, I can assure you that. Um, but um, yeah, so, so, so everything, uh, everything... Everything I am, I owe to those high school classes in economics and Latin. How's the Latin <laughs> useful, Frank? Latin's just fun, and it helps okay. you understand language. And the, the, the Latin, I will say, Latin was is less directly applicable like, in my day to day life, probably, than the economics course was. But but okay. but I enjoyed Latin. I took Latin in school. I didn't enjoy Latin, but that's a different story. Right. right. Let's uh, talk about inflation. <laughs> um, now, inflation as a the term didn't exist. Uh, at least not in the, the economic sense dur- during the revolutionary period, but they, it was an issue they, they, they dealt with. So talk about how inflation shaped the politics and, and life of, of the revolutionary generation. Sure, I mean, this is one of the moments in American history where it's really, really important, frankly, because there is widespread what we would describe, I think, as hyperinflation, mm. which is a kind of extreme rise in prices uh, immediately after the War of Independence, uh, in the 1780s, and the reason for this is because uh, the states and Congress uh, printed so much money to pay for the War of Independence, and the result of this was that there was a lot of basically worthless paper currency. Not worth a continental. Yeah, that, that expression, so the continental dollar, and the expression was not worth a continental. There was a w- huge amount of, of worthless paper currency in circulation, individual states and banks were issuing currency. I mean, you'll know this from your mm. own period. There was, there was no kind of recognizable single currency in, in, in the country at the time, which led to a great deal of economic instability and led to a great deal of anxiety on the part of those people who wanted to see the Articles of Confederation, not just reformed, but replaced by uh, something else. And that something else would become the new federal constitution in 1787, uh, drafted in 1787. But in the mid-1780s, what we see is widespread inflation. And it's because the state of Massachusetts in 1785 and 86 adopted deflationary mechanisms directly trying to address the problem of inflation. Uh, so requiring people to pay their debts in, in with hard currency, with specie rather than paper currency, for example. Prosecuting people for debt and defaulting on their debts. Uh, these measures sparked Shays' Rebellion in Massachusetts in 1786, which in turn led to the government in Boston essentially backing down. I mean, they raised an army to suppress the rebellion, but they actually also... Um, revoked most of the measures that were meant to be deflationary. And this led many people, at least who, those who sought to uh, replace the Articles of Confederation with the new Constitution, to say, look, this experiment in Republican government isn't working. And so that political crisis was really caused by hyperinflation in the 1780s. At least that's one narrative. Mm. It's kind of the conventional textbook narrative. You give me a slightly well, quizzical look, David. I what, what did well, I get wrong? That, no, no, I think I think you got it right. But I mean, I think that's the the that line of thinking about how you get to the Constitution, uh, you know, doesn't necessarily put the Constitution in a particularly good light, depending on how you read what the motivation objectives were of the men who drafted it. 
You know, if they are creditors who don't want to see inflation because it's bad for them um, and are trying to make sure that they're getting paid back in, in good money, uh, that, that, you know, there's the whole economics interpretation progressive school yeah, I mean, you just get, you just very ably summed up the kind of Charles Beard interpretation. And Charles Beard published the Economic Interpretation of the Constitution in 1913, mm. which is the year we got the Consumer Price Index, which is how we measure inflation today. But we're jumping ahead. Yeah. I, the one thing I would say in response to that is, sure, that it's not necessarily... Look, look. Jefferson called the framers of the Constitution an assembly of demigods, and he didn't believe that because he wasn't there. Um, He's also a deist, so like, <laughs> what does a demigod mean to someone who doesn't believe in? Yeah, that's right. Um, but 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 that's not what it was. I mean, these were self-interested politicians at some level. This wasn't the only issue. So, so to some extent, the economic crisis and political crisis as they saw it, prompted by hyperinflation, hmm. was one thing they were seeking to address. And yes, it. Uh, the, the steps they proposed also were aligned with their own self-interest, mm. but they weren't only aligned with their self-interest. I, I guess that's the one thing I would say. It wasn't as simple as, we're doing this because we're creditors. And I think, and I think even Charles Beard knew that. Yeah, I think sure. Beard gets misread somewhat about in that, in that regard. But it's not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, they, you know, they did benefit from the um, drafting and ratification and the, the the creation of the constitution and the new government under that constitution. It's no doubt about that. Yeah, to be sure, right? You know, part I think part of the story about inflation is about how governments, both state governments like Massachusetts in that situation, and how, how the federal government responds to inflation. I think that's as important to understand as, as what's actually causing the inflation in the first place. Is is there what's the remedy if there is one um, for inflation. Yeah, I mean, just to jump ahead to the current moment, mm. why are we talking about inflation? In part, we're talking about inflation because there is inflation at the moment, uh, but not huge by historic no. uh, by historic in historic terms. But there is significant inflation of what we've had recently. But it's also a tool by which particularly Republicans, but also the right-wing media are attacking Joe Biden at the moment. So they're blaming Joe Biden. You know, it's a way to, and and frankly, you made reference to 40 years ago, mm. it's also a way to lay, kind of label Joe Biden as a kind of politician, from the, an ineffectual politician from the 1970s, yeah. like Jimmy Carter. Carter, yes. No, I think, I think that's 100% right about what's going on at, at this particular moment, that they don't want the Biden spending package, and so they say that's going to cause more inflation, so that's why they're harping on inflation. And their key voter demographic for Republicans right now are people who lived through the uh, inflationary crises of the 1970s uh, and, and have a, have a uh, you know, panic reaction, Pavlovian reaction to inflation from that uh, that I think they're trying to try to trigger. That's right. I think that's right. But sorry, we, we're getting ahead of ourselves, so, though. But but your point is a good one. Whether it's the seventeen eighties, the nineteen seventies, or the twenty twenties, there's inflation as an economic factor, which frankly isn't where our strengths as historians lie because we're not economic historians, and mm -hmm. which has probably already become clear to our listeners. But just in case they need to remind you, uh, however, it's the kind of cultural and political valence of it is an important dimension to the story as well. And I think that becomes clear as we, will become clear as we mm. discuss this. What happens to your century, David? So uh, take us to the 19th century. Okay, so 
the, the basic story in the 19th century, it, it, the problem isn't inflation, it's actually deflation, if that's a problem. That's at least that's the, the situation where prices are actually dropping from 1800 to, to 1900. Are wages dropping too? Wages are also often dropping, uh, but in none of the, neither of these are happening at a very high rate, and, and they're not necessarily happening in ways uh, that are causing sort of in significant panics. But wages are often also going down. Um, and there's a variety of reasons why prices are going down and why, why sometimes wages are going down. Some of it has to do with manufacturing. Things are going, from, you know, if you're going from handmade shoes to machine-made shoes, the machine-made shoes are going to be cheaper. Transportation costs are going down. Um, so you're going to have, you know, uh, the, the cost of transportation that gets factored into prices in 1800, a lot of those are much lower by, by 1900. Um, you've got a, a monetary policy for most of the 19th century that is based on gold. So you've got sort of a fixed amount of, of gold uh, throughout the, the, this century that has sort of deflationary elements to it. Um, the times when you have inflation in the 19th century tend to be at, at wartime. So in the War of 1812, there's pretty substantial inflation in 1813, and it drops immediately as soon as the war is over. In fact, in 1815, the year the war ends, that we have deflation of 12%. I'm slightly surprised by that, David, because the, the, I mean, I'm not surprised at the impact of war on inflation. I yeah. think that's quite clear. But in terms of the War of 1812, it's such a short conflict. Um, how reliable do you think those figures are? Well, you know, reconstruct. We don't have good inflationary data until we get to things like the consumer price uh, index in the you know in the teens and twenties. Um, so I mean, in some ways, this is a historical reconstruction of of data, but it's um, you know, and thinking about how much prices are are of things that are consumed versus things you manufacture at home. There's a whole change about the way the economy works, and so. You know, I'm not sure, 100% sure how much these kind the data with inflation, how much that affects your average American. I think it's going to be much more, much more impactful in the 20th century, in the 21st century, than it would be in the early 19th. If you're a small farmer and you're growing most of your own food and making your own clothes, prices going up and down um, aren't going to affect you in, in the same way. And in many cases, you're going to think of yourself more as a producer than as a consumer. So if prices go up, you're like, okay, good, prices go up. I can sell my grain for more to whoever wants to buy it. Um, and, you know, if prices for shoes go up, well, then I don't buy shoes this year, whatever. You know, so it's a, it's a different kind of economy, and so I think that makes some difference. Um, so you do have a jump in the War of 1812. And part of it's, you know, there, there's all the issues with, you know, how much insurance costs for shipping and all these other kinds of things go up. It depends on what you're measuring to measure inflation. Uh, the Civil War causes lots of inflation. In the, in the North, there's something in the order of 25% inflation during the war, and, and for all the reasons that make sense about how the government's putting money in to, to finance the war, people are, are, the army itself is consuming lots of stuff, so that's, uh, you know, it creates inflationary pressures, obviously, there's demands for wages. If when all the soldiers are gone, you got to hire people. You have to pay more in order to get get that get that labor. Uh, but the places where inflation really comes to a crisis level is in the Confederacy. 
because um, the unions has at the most 25% inflation the Confederacy has inflation in multiple hundreds percent. So there's sort of hyperinflation in the Confederacy, especially in the second half of the war, that really causes substantial problems for both the Confederate government and for um, people on the home front. So to, 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 to look back to where we started, is what we see in the Confederacy kind of what happened in the aftermath of the revolution only writ large, or is it what happened after the revolution if the rebels had lost? Hmm. Well, there's a couple of things that are going on in the Confederacy that are similar to what happens in the revolutionary era, and there's some stuff that are different. Similarly, they're both printing a lot of money. The Confederacy is, is financing its war effort by basically just, just printing paper money. Uh, and state governments are printing paper money. They're printing like 25 cent you know, denominations of paper money, printing $100 bills. It's, it's crazy. Um, you know, and by the end of the war, that money is basically worthless. And obviously, when the war is over, it's entirely worthless. Uh, so that's one of the factors that's causing inflation. Uh, but there are some other ones. The Union blockade is causing inflation because all of a sudden all the goods that were imported are now have to be smuggled through uh, on blockade runners. So if you want to buy, uh, if you wanted to buy coffee, and I pick coffee because I drink a lot of coffee, um, coffee becomes almost impossible to get in the Confederacy, and so you get very very high prices for coffee, for medicine, for paper, for ink. Um, for all kinds of these things that are not manufactured in the Confederacy, it becomes very, very expensive. Um, and, you know, there's Confederate government has lots of problems because they've got this mind to say, look, we want to buy food for our army. They, you know, they can't find people who are willing to take their money and they can't find um, economic, you know, so the economy of the Confederacy collapses in large part in the later part of the war because of the, among other things, this sort of hyperinflation. People are starving. There are bread riots. There's most famous bread riot is in Richmond in 1863, which is a, a riot of basically housewives demanding to be able to buy grain um, at, at prices they can afford because they go into the you know uh, uh, market and the grain that used to cost five dollars for a huge sack is now fifty dollars and 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 we find actually you know the one in Richmond's the most famous because the military basically puts it down uh, but you find other bread riots in other parts of the confederacy and in uh, in atlanta and in charlotte and in salisbury and a dozen other places if the confederacy had won its independence david which of course is a plausible scenario okay yeah what would have happened? I mean, within the realm of, uh, you know, can, 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 Count, I mean, counterfactual, make yeah, up anything I mean, Counterfactual history is always problematic. But what, again, I'm, I'm thinking about the 1780s again. So, yeah. so, so if it's an independent country, next to this economic behemoth that it's defeated, but, but, or won its independence from, but, mm. but uh, um, what happens to that inflation in the Confederacy? Because presumably Confederate money is not worthless then. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the things that's going to happen in the immediate aftermath of hypothetically imagining a Confederate victory uh, with all the horrors that entails, um, you know, the Confederate economy could rebound once the blockade is lifted uh, by exporting cotton. And as much as there was a huge demand for cotton in Europe, they could probably then place their gold supplies because 
part of the problem that the Confederacy had was that most of the gold in the United States was held in um, northern states, especially in New York, and so the, the absence of hard currency in the Confederacy was one of the many economic problems they had. They could, an independent Confederacy could presumably get a lot of gold, trading cotton for gold, etc. So it would have been a slightly different scenario than the 1780s, inasmuch as cotton for the Confederacy was, you know, um, what petroleum was to Middle Eastern countries in the late 20th century. Sure, okay, I've got, I've got two follow-ups, if you'll indulge me. So, uh, sure. So, so, so if cotton gets them out of the problem, hmm. do they need to engage in the kind of political reform, and I'm using reform in a kind of neutral way. <laughs> I'm using air quotes here. Air quotes, okay, um, okay. The kind of constitutional reform we saw in the 1780s, would, would that have been necessary? <sighs> to get on top of this economic, or, or would cotton have been enough to get them out of the problem? I guess that entirely depends on, on how long the war lasted and what a Confederate victory would have looked like. Right, okay. Which involves all kinds of, yes. Yeah, sure. You know, and, I, and I realize th this is the problem with counterfactuals. The, the number of variables become so great that it's, it's absurd. Sure. My second question, though, yes. relates to gold. Because, and I'm glad you mentioned gold, because one of the things, if Mr. Garrity taught me correctly, uh, all those years ago in economics was, okay, when the money supply increases, you get inflation. With why you mentioned that there wasn't a whole lot of inflation in the 19th century, yet everybody knows about the California the gold, gold rush. rush. So the yeah. gold supply, not just in the United States, but globally, globally. increased. So why didn't we see a surge of inflation because of that? That's a good question. Um, and part of the answer may have to do with changing notions about how inflation works between when you took economics and today. What are you trying to say, David? <laughs> that you're, no, it is. Well, so, so modern monetary theory suggests, actually, that the, the sort of iron rule that connects the money supply to, to inflation may not actually be as, as linear as we, we thought it was. So wait, are you saying the economics course I took in high school 40 years ago might not be as relevant as I think? Maybe not. Okay. Okay. Because there, there's, there, there are certain economic theorists today who say actually government can print money and it's going to not have any effect on inflation. Um, actually, AOC has talked about this, but one of those sort of, of you know, claims that have been made historically about why, why we shouldn't in increase government spending is that will cause inflation. And one of the things that, that economists have, have found is that that's not necessarily the case. That increased government spending doesn't, doesn't or increased, increasing the money supply by uh, you know, quantitative easing or stimulus or using whatever framework you want to use to describe it, does it in and of itself cause inflation? Um, that the factors that cause inflation are more complicated than that and it isn't uh, as linear as we thought. Economists have actually struggled throughout the past 150 years to really make sense of what causes inflation. Printing paper money is one of the things that, that contributes to it, but in and of itself doesn't necessarily mean uh, that, we're, that inflation is, is, is imminent. Um, okay, but if we go after the Civil War, so we get to the later 19th century, yes. so we're still in your century, 
And whenever we have these discussions, I'm happy I have my sanctuary. It, 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 okay. <laughs> yours is complicated. My, sorry. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> uh, we, but we get later, and, and there are all these debates about the gold standard and silver and everything else. So how do they relate to inflation? Do we see a lot of inflation at the turn of the no, late 19th or no, 20th century? No, we see actually an absence of inflation then. Uh, we see deflation then. We have a sort of, you know, and part of this is about productivity and productivity going up and so prices go down, which is you know, not necessarily a, a bad thing. Um, but the word inflation didn't have a negative valence attached to it in the late 19th century. There were politicians who said, look, what we need are, is more inflation. We need to increase the money supply. We need to increase prices. We need to increase wages because that would be good for, for working people, for Americans as a whole. Um, for instance, during the panic of 1873, there were a group of senators who pushed for an inflation, what they called an inflation bill, which suggests they didn't see it as a negative term, um, and actually passes through Congress in 1874 that would have dramatically increased the money supply to, to inflate prices, which in this middle, of, it's, this is the middle of a, a huge economic crisis, one of the largest the country had ever faced. Um, Grant vetoes it for complicated reasons, um, but I think that suggests that when people were talked about inflation then, they actually saw that as a solution to the problems that, that many Americans were facing. Um, that is to say that if you were in debt, inflation is good for you. you, know, if you and lots of Americans found themselves in debt. They saw inflation as a way to create more jobs, that the, the more jobs are out there, that the, the more money in circulation, they thought that would be... be uh, sort of you know, grease the wheels of the economy. Um, and so there, there are fairly heavy debates throughout the late 19th century about do we print paper money, do we not print paper money, do we have the gold standard, do we embrace bimetallism? You know, and these were the dominant political questions in the 1880s and 1890s. And inflation as an idea is still sort of in its infancy as, a, as an economic term, it really originates in the 1860s and 1870s, um, but doesn't really get its modern valence until, until we get into the 20th century. Um, but there are people who are saying, look, actually what the country needs is not, uh, is inflationary policies to, to, to help lift people out of poverty. Because of course in the Gilded Age you have Lots of Americans very deeply in poverty. It's the age of Jacob Reese's How the Other Half Lives. It's the great age of sharecropping in which sharecroppers find themselves in debt and then they grow more cotton the next year and the price of cotton continues to drop and the more cotton they grow, the more the prices continue to decline and the deeper in debt they find themselves. And so you find lots of Americans you know, mired in debt and therefore unable to, you know, invest they're unable to to rise out of that indebtedness in part because of the fairly persistent deflationary pressures that they're facing so by the 20th century indeed 1913 is a really important mm. year in this and um, we start to get more reliable figures on inflation why is that well we get a couple of things in in the progressive era one is we get the federal reserve uh, which is, is established in 1913. And the Federal Reserve is given, and so now we're, you know, 100 years since then, has had a sort of a two-part mandate, I guess. One is, and 
One is to maximize employment, and the other half is to control inflation. Uh, and, and, and sort of trying to how to balance these, I think, is actually something that, that the Fed is dealing with right now. I mean, right now there's a, the employment situation in the United States and in the UK, but especially it seems like in the United States, is in a very weird place. Um, and we're also seeing sort of this potential for creeping inflation, how you balance those two objectives uh, is, is the Fed's mandate. Uh, but then slightly after that, we get the creation of the Consumer Price Index, um, which I think you find versions of it in around 1913, but then it gets more formalized in, in um, 1917 and then finally why 1920. Is it, what is it and why is it important? Oh, uh, sure. The Consumer Price Index is the main um, gauge of inflation that's been used for the past 100 years. We didn't celebrate the birthday for the Consumer Price Index last year. Oh, well, we missed that. Um, it's a basket of groceries, right? Well, basically, so, yeah, well, it, it, the, the premise behind the Consumer Price Index is, is that they, people at the Bureau of Labor Statistics and now at the uh, Department of Labor, uh, they go and, 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 and measure the prices of a number of consumer goods, a basket of goods, as you point out. And so it's, what's in the basket varies from time to time, but it's things like, what you know, a gallon of milk costs, and a you know a pound of flour, and how much rent costs, and how what wages are, and they measure this in a number of different markets across the country to deal with regional variations and things, and that allows them to compare at different points in time what those prices are. So if the price of milk goes up and the price of rent goes down, they can sort of balance those out to figure out whether prices and wages generally are going up or going down. So unlike when we discussed the War of 1812, we, from approximately 1913 on, certainly for the last century, mm. we now have reliable data to compare the inflation rate across time. Is that, well, is that correct? I mean, is that, that, a, is that yeah, fair? relatively speaking. We can, you know, I think we can our, meaningfully our, talk, talk about the inflation shifts. rate. Now, I mean, there were people who, when the Consumer Price Index came out, you know, said this is a very political tool and, and they're not measuring it right. You know, and labor organizations said, look, actually prices are going up much more than this. And, and, and so it wasn't actually, it took a while for it to, to gain currency as being a sort of valuable statistic and a real measure of, of how prices were changing. The origin of it, actually, I think there was a labor dispute in, um, uh, I think it was a shipyard where there, where, where and there was a, a dispute about whether how, how much prices were, were, were increasing, and so they tried to figure out well we need to be able to measure this so we can negotiate between the employer and the labor union about how much uh, wages should should rise to, to compensate for that. Um, but by the you know nineteen thirties nineteen forties we definitely have have data people are moderately confident in. Well, and particularly because even if you don't like what's in the basket, hmm. if you have the basket, you can at least compare over time. time. So, so, yeah. so one thing that becomes quite clear, and it develops the thesis you, you, you advanced a few hmm. minutes ago, is after wartime, we see a surge in inflation. So we see a surge in, in 1918, I think the inflation rate was, if I check my figure, 18%, yeah. um, according to the, the CPI. We see it's 14.5% it's in 1947. After the Second World War, we see a surge after the Korean War. Uh, we well, don't... Well, there's a couple things there that are happening there that are different. 
one of the, you know so there's there is a pretty substantial inflationary pressures in World War One. In World War Two in Korea, I think they recognize the government recognizes that the war is going to create inflationary pressures, and they try to sort of circumnavigate or cut around that before it happens by installing prices and wage controls during the Second World War. And it's actually when they remove those at the end of the Second World War that leads to this sort of jump in inflation. Um, you know, and I think part of the reason why they were able to institute those during the war is that they're playing around with these ideas about how does the government control prices and wages during the Great Depression. You know, all the stuff with the um, National Recovery Administration had had sort of uh, standardized wage tables and price levels. And there's all kinds of New Deal programs that are playing around with trying to sort of manipulate the market to 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 control. Uh, both high prices and low prices, uh, and, and those get expanded during, uh, during the during the Second World War, and then again during Korea, where they they put in pretty strict uh, con- wartime controls, and it's, it's taking away those that really leads to sort of a de- de- uh, sort of chaotic moment when 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 people don't know what the real prices should be, and there's a huge jump in prices as a consequence of that. You also have a surge in spending because of demobilization oh, and sure. the GI Bill and all kinds of... Uh, uh, then the baby boom. Right. All, babies cost a lot of money. So you know. I'm aware of that. <laughs> <laughs> no, and there's, a, there's the housing boom right after yes. the war. I mean, the economy really takes off after the war. The economy grew during the war, hmm. but grew after the war as well. Which oh, definitely. To, 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 uh, the Second World, world War, certainly. Uh, and that boom went on for a couple of decades, in fact. We... Get to the 1970s, and inflation's a problem, or suddenly considered a problem. Mm. So in 1974, the inflation rate was 11%. It fluctuates over the course of the decade. By in 1979 and 80, it's sort of it, it's between 11 and 13 and a half percent. So so the, the 70s were characterized by inflation, and this new thing that comes that uh, that um, at least journalists are talking about stagflation which is when you have both inflation and seemingly uh, a recession. So you have an economic contraction combined with um, rising prices, which seemed to be unprecedented at the time. So there was a real sense in the 1970s that the country was on the wrong track. And as you suggested at the beginning of this of this conversation, David, uh, we, we're still living with the legacy of that? Would, would you? I think, I think we are. I mean, I think... I'm embedding your economics teacher when 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 he was talking about inflation, you know, had very much had that in the back of his mind about this is a you know something that's really a very bad thing, um, that's something that should be be people should worry about when they see it. Uh, yeah, I was taking that course in the early eighties. So, so so the after you know like that was you know literally you know something that he had experienced and. Um, you know, was still very much in, in the sort of zeitgeist. Well, you won't remember it, but I, I certainly do. I, my parents were really concerned about inflation. People talked about inflation in the 1970s. I didn't understand it, but, yeah. but they talked about it because I was a kid, but they talked about it a lot. And it was on the news, you know, the kind of things that were on the news all the time were uh, Watergate, the Bicentennial, and inflation. Those are kind of yes, things that yeah. kind of dominated the mid-1970s. And in part, it was caused by the, the oil embargo in 1974, 
I do wonder the degree to which the end of the Vietnam War, given the post-war aspect of this, which is not something I, a connection I necessarily made before, it was a factor. But there was a sense, in part because of Vietnam, mm. in part because of Watergate, but also inflation, that that sense of crisis that permeated the country in the 1970s, inflation was a big part of that. Well, I, it, oh, 100%. And, and, and trying to figure out what caused the inflationary crisis in the 1970s. I think it's something that economists and, and, and economic historians have been wrestling with because I think there's several different narratives you can choose about what caused that inflationary crisis. Uh, and you can push whatever one you want to create the kind of policy decisions you want right. as of today. Um, so, you know, the, the oil crisis has often been pointed to, and, and there's, a, you know, obviously a couple of different uh, moments there where the, the oil crisis in 1973 with the embargo, uh, then in 1979 after the, after the Iranian Revolution, uh, you know, those are points in which you've got gas prices are going up, much like gas prices are going up today, although for very different reasons. You know, that causes inflationary pressures. Um, there's an argument that some people make that the problem of inflation in the 70s was caused by labor unions. The labor unions are pushing for higher wages in the 1970s, and that breaking labor unions is one of the, you know, for people who follow this line of thought, uh, breaking labor unions under the Reagan administration was one of the things that stopped inflation uh, for the past 40 years. Um, and so if you're hostile to labor, you can point to that. Um, there are people who you can point to choices, political choices that are made during the 1970s. So one of the things uh, that, that Nixon did in 1971 um, was he recognized that there was some uh, uh, kind of an economic crossroads, that the choices he said were between uh, inflation and uh, higher unemployment. And he decided that higher inflation is better than higher unemployment, especially considering the Im imminent election uh, in 1972. And you know he made some choices there about going off the gold standard, about actually putting a, a freeze on wages and prices, um, and getting off of the sort of Bretton Woods economic model created after the Second World War. Uh, some of those choices led to inflation. Um, so I'm, you know, figuring out what caused inflation in the 1970s is very tricky, and figuring out how to fight it, I think, was one of the big struggles. Because you know, Nixon tried several things, Ford tried a couple things during his brief presidency. He had famously had these uh, buttons printed "Whip Inflation Now." You probably remember those. Um, you know, where he was asking people to voluntarily uh, consume less. Um, he talks about inflation being public enemy number one in a speech in front of Congress in 1974. Um, you know, and he suggested people do things like carpooling as a way to sort of fight inflation uh, and turning down your thermostats. Jimmy Carter tried the same thing. He said everyone should wear a sweater. That, you know, uh, didn't go very well for him. Um, you know, and there's this thought that inflation as a problem, you know, doomed both of their presidencies in a way. And so in the subsequent 40 years, we've had pretty low inflation. We've had steady inflation, so it's been between 1% and 2% a year, which is basically what the Fed likes. Yes. Having um, a little bit of inflation, most economists think is good. Yeah, but, but it's, it's been manageable and, to a large extent, unnoticeable. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's interesting you mentioned the, uh, the 
political significance of the current rhetoric around inflation, because I think you're right. It's very much targeted at a demographic that can remember the 1970s, which is to say, well, I was a kid then, but people my age and older for whom this is a kind of, you know, is a formative memory. And, and it's a bad thing. It yeah. must be a bad thing. And, and, and therefore, it's a, it's a, it could be potentially be a potent political weapon, um, depending on how things play out over the, over the next 12 months, and certainly in the run-up to the midterm elections next November. It should be said, compared to some of those other periods of high inflation, as I said, 1918, it was 18%. Uh, in the 1970s, uh, you know, in, in, well, in nineteen eighty. Uh, after the Iranian Revolution and the kind of culmination of that decade is 13.5%. Today, in the United States, it's 6.8%, but the average for this year, and they take, tend to take annual averages, mm. is 4.4%. So we're not at the levels we saw then. But I think the anxiety about it is quite profound. And economists, it's, it's almost too early to tell what's causing it right now. They think it's a combination of things. The uh, supply chain issues we talked about a couple of weeks ago, uh, the pent-up demand because of we were all locked down for, for mm-hmm. a year, uh, the stimulus payments that, that Americans receive from the government. There are a variety of factors, that, and the rise in gas prices or petrol prices. Uh, all of these things seem to be contributing to it. Is this a problem? I don't think it's a problem. I think actually one of the things that... In retrospect, is a problem is the fact that we haven't had more inflation in the past forty years. One of the things, one of the reasons why we haven't had more inflation in the past forty years is that wages have stagnated, especially for people who are at sort of the bottom half of the income spectrum. If you are have been wealthy over the past forty years, you've become much more wealthy. But if you are making minimum wages, your 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 buying power has actually decreased over that time period. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why we haven't seen uh, a lot of inflation is because the minimum wage hasn't gone up, the wages for entry-level jobs have not gone up, um, and, and in as much as that's one of the contributing you know, uh, variables in, in, in how you calculate inflation, um, that's a, a, an issue the country really hasn't wrestled with. Uh, one of the things that's causing inflation now potentially is uh, workers demanding higher wages for entry-level positions. We talk, I mentioned last week the unionization in a couple of stores in Starbucks. Uh, but I think what we're seeing uh, today is that lots of people aren't willing to work you know, for $8 an hour uh, because it doesn't seem worth it to them work, working for $8 an hour demanding more wages. And, and if that causes inflationary pressures, I'm... That seems like a better outcome to me than than people living in, in poverty. What do you think? So wait a second. Uh, I, I'm going to spin this as though I'm on Fox News. David Silkenat agrees with Richard Nixon <laughs> that employment is better. The, the, the risk of inflation is, is, is worth it if there's better employment, higher employment. Well, and measuring these things, I think, whether it's inflation or... Um, employment levels you know they get reported like these are neutral statistics but I'm not sure they are neutral statistics that you know what you consider 
what prices you consider important, what, what prices, you know, if there's an inflation in the price of yachts, that's going to affect a certain part of the population more than others. If there's inflation in the price of sugar, that's going to affect different people in different ways, right? And so I think, you know, looking at, at disaggregating these things is important. You know, likewise with employment, um, you know, I think one of the things that potentially may be happening now uh, with, the, with the job market is there were lots of Americans before the pandemic who were working three jobs, and now they decide they only want to work two, you know? Does that change the unemployment level? Not you point the way we usually measure employment, um, but it does change the number of people who are out there working, or at least the number of slots that are filled uh, with employment. Um, and so I'm not sure we should take the statistics in and of themselves as being um, the objectives. I think the, the, you need to look at, at the, the economy in a more holistic way. Uh, rather than, than trying to sort of goose the numbers. Because, you know, part of the, the, the thing that Nixon did in 1971 was trying to goose the numbers before an election on the supposition that, that people would respond well to good numbers. Um, and, and I'm not sure that's the, that those kind of holistic ways of looking at the economy are, or those quantitative ways of looking at the economy are, are all that necessarily that useful. He did win in a landslide in 1972. <laughs> well, but you see, that's that's you know the relationship between correlation isn't causation. Yeah, well, yes, that's true. But I think the relationship between the the president and and elected officials more broadly, and you know, people at the Federal Reserve, you know, there's supposed to be sort of a firewall there between those two to try to prevent people from doing things that are going to cause short-term um, improvements in the economy, but are in the long-term going to be negative um, and, and, or long-term going to be problematic or unsustainable. Um, and uh, you know, Nixon played with that line and other people have, have subsequently tried to play with that line. And, and, uh, but thinking back to, to where we are now, I know I don't think inflation is a big problem. All of the problems the country is facing, and the United States is facing a lot of problems right now, inflation isn't in my top 50. Right. So At least not 5%. If we get to 20%, then we should have a conversation. Okay. And you asked me, I think it's too soon to tell. Okay. <laughs> Uh, because we've only had a few months of this, and uh, and there do seem to be some particular circumstances, whether it's coming out of lockdown, the supply mm. chain, etc., that, that that might account for this. So we it might not be as significant as a problem as it seems uh, to some people at the moment. Having said that, I think one thing that is interesting to me, and um, uh, one reason why this could be significant, is. We now almost exclusively, and I say we, I'm talking about Americans generally, regardless of their politics, interpret the economic situation through the lens of our partisan beliefs and partisan views. Now, maybe we've always done this. Yes, I think we've always done Well, you know, and your question about the relationship between inflation and the drafting of the Constitution, you know, a few minutes ago, indicates that this has always been a thing. Yes. Having said that, it seems particularly acute now. Uh, and, and, and therefore, the fact that at least for a significant proportion of the country, um, 
the belief that there's runaway inflation in the United States and it's Joe Biden's fault has taken root means that whatever the data says, mm. I'm not sure we'll be able to change that perception. Um, and, and I think that that's a, that's a real issue. That's a yeah. real issue. And, and it's a factor that has to be taken into account in making calculations uh, mm. about politics and, and, and about social policy. So it's become a problem, for example, uh, when it comes to the Build Back Better bill, which appears to be on its last legs. It, it, it's not doing as well. Not, as, yeah. <laughs> we're not building back better at the moment. Um, you know, after the success of the infrastructure bill, that second bill does seem to be in trouble, if the news this morning is to be believed. And in part, that's because of a fear about inflation. So yes. let's, let me take Joe Manchin at his word in this particular case, because Joe Manchin the senator from West Virginia, conservative Democrat, uh, who's the, one of the big obstacles to the Build Back Better bill, along with Kristen Sinema, Kirsten Sinema from, from Arizona. Um, mansions of that exact age where he would remember inflation in the 1970s as yes. a real danger. And so I think his concern about public spending leading to inflation He's not necessarily lying about that. In other words, I, I think he might be speaking, he's sincere. He, I think we could take him at his word when he says that. Mm. And so that's a good example of the direct consequence of the belief that inflation is a problem in the United States yeah. today. No, I, th I think that's right. Um, you know, and, and going back to the 1970s, you know, looking at who got harmed the most by the inflationary pressures. You know, a lot of the people who, who, who suffered the most from inflation were actually people who were pretty low on the income ladder. In as much as, as the things that prices that increased the most during the 1970s were for uh, both for gasoline, but also for food. Those prices increased dramatically, you know, which helps to explain why so many um, former Democrats voted for Reagan in 1980. It helps to explain that sort of blue dog Democrat, of which Manchin is maybe like the only one left. Um, and so I think there's there's a there's a definite uh, reference point there for, for a whole generation of Americans. That's right. That's right. I think that's right. All right. Well, we will see what happens with inflationary pressures uh, in the, the weeks and months to come. Uh, time for last drops. What you got, Frank? I've got two, David. If you'll indulge okay, me. Okay, sure. It's, it's, the, the, holiday it's the holiday season. You're getting a gift here, an extra. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's a time of excess. We're having an inflation of last drops. <laughs> um, so I've got two. I wanna I wanna endorse something called the Pause Cast. It's not podcast. The Pause Cast. Pause Cast. Gotcha. P O S Cast, and and it's it's hosted by Joe Posnanski, who's a sports writer, a very good sports writer in the United States, and his co-host is Michael Shore, who will be well known to some people as he was a writer on the U.S. edition of The Office. He was uh, helped create programs like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Good Place, Parks and Rec. No, no, no. His, his, yeah, good stuff. his pedigree. And he's, they're both very smart, very amusing. So in general, I recommend the podcast. But in particular, I recommend the most recent episode because they interview the journalist uh, Howard Bryant. And Bryant wrote a very excellent biography of the uh, baseball player Henry Aaron. He's got another one coming out next spring, a biography of Ricky Henderson. Great. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, no. Howard Bryant. And Howard Bryant, very, very smart guy. And they talked about the recent decisions of the 
Baseball Hall of Fame. I can't remember what it's called. It's the Veterans Committee. It's got, it's got a slightly different name now, but they, they admitted six new members uh, of the Hall of the Baseball Hall of Fame. Now, this may not be terribly interesting to many of our listeners, except this episode is worth listening to because among those the people who was admitted who were recently admitted to the Hall of Fame is Buck O'Neill, and Buck O'Neill will be known to people who saw Ken Burns's baseball documentary years ago. He's he he was a a uh, very prominent player in the Negro Leagues. He, after that, he was a scout. He was a, uh, he worked in baseball for decades and decades and decades. He, he died in, in his 90s. But um, Howard Bryant speaks very eloquently in this episode about Buck O'Neill and his legacy. And when Posnanski and Michael Shore say, it's, oh, it's quite sad that Buck O'Neill didn't live long enough to... Uh, see himself elected to the Hall of Fame because he, he just missed out during mm. his lifetime. Uh, Howard Bryant makes a very eloquent case for why that doesn't matter. Mm. He said, you know, Buck O'Neill is bigger than the Hall of Fame. It's very, very powerful and it speaks to bigger questions. It's not just about baseball. It speaks about questions of civil rights and race and, and reckoning with the past yeah. in the United States. So I strongly recommend that. The second thing I want to recommend is uh, a story that went around earlier this week um, on, on social media. So I picked, I, I encountered it on, on Twitter and it's about Jimmy Carter, speaking of inflation in the 1970s. Oh, yes. okay. And uh, there was a, the, the first big kind of nuclear meltdown in the West or partial nuclear meltdown in the West um, occurred uh, near Ottawa in Canada in 1952 at a place called Chalk River. And there was a, a, a pretty serious nuclear accident that almost resulted in a, in a meltdown. Uh, then, then and there, and and the United States Navy or the United States was called in to help uh, the Canadian government in, in dealing with this problem. Um, uh, the Navy had a had a prominent um, nuclear corps uh, under the under the um, under the command of Hiram Rickover, who who was who helped train the Navy engineers, nuclear engineers. Among them was a twenty eight year old Jimmy Carter, who was one of the. Uh, Navy nuclear engineers who went into the reactor Hmm. to help repair it and prevent the meltdown. Now, this is not a new story. I I checked, it was on the internet, so I wanted to check and make sure this was real before I talked about it. Uh, It's not a new story. Carter has written a number of memoirs because he's lived, he's very long lived. (laughs) And he wrote about it in his campaign autobiography in 1976, Why Not the Best? He also wrote about it in a later autobiography. and Carter, in typical Carter fashion, doesn't present himself as the only person who worked on this, and he wasn't. There was a team doing this because they could only go in for 90 seconds at a time. Oh, jeez. To replace the parts in this yeah. reactor. And they practiced on a tennis court nearby where they created a model reactor of the same size. It's a fascinating story. But what you realize is Jimmy Carter was one tough SOB. So Jimmy Carter gets lowered into this um, and his colleagues get lowered into this thing for 90 seconds at a time to make repairs. Mm. They get pulled out. They go back in, they get pulled, uh, to, to limit the amount of radiation they were exposed to. His urine, there were traces of radiation in his it's urine. the first time we've discussed presidential <laughs> urine in this podcast. For the next six months. Okay. Um, and so, so this, is, this, is a, this is a pretty significant yeah. uh, activity. And it just is further proof that Jimmy Carter might be the most interesting man who ever became president. He's, he's up there. He's, yeah. He is up there, and his life of Doesn't public get enough credit service for... is extraordinary. Yes. And so this went around on the internet, and a lot of people saying, hey, Jimmy Carter was a badass, and it's actually true. 
Yes. And, and, and uh, so, as I said, I did a little research to, to confirm this. So December 12th is the anniversary next year. It was 1952, so next year will be a big anniversary of this. Um, so, so just uh, I'm raising a last glass to, to Jimmy, young Jimmy Carter. Young Jimmy Carter. Helping to, to prevent a nuclear meltdown in 1952. Great. Okay, cool. What about you, Dave? What do you uh, I want to point people to a, an article in Perspectives on History, which is the AHA's uh, magazine by Rebecca Brenner Graham, oh, right. yep. uh, called Hustling to Get By, Side Jobs in Graduate School. And it's uh, an article that's basically about the, the stipends that the PhD students get, how they are, in many cases, not enough to live off of, and the kinds of work that PhD students have to do in order to make it through graduate school. Uh, and about the effects that has on, on their studies, effects it has on who feels that they're able to go to graduate school, uh, and you know it argues that basically we should pay graduate students better, which I heartily agree. Um, but I think it sort of speaks to a, a problem that's been around in a variety of forms for um, a number of years. But as as college towns get more and more expensive places to live in, uh, the kinds of stipends that we're providing, especially in the humanities, aren't enough, even with. Uh, ramen noodles to, to get by. So. Yeah, and she describes the number of jobs she did, which were both fascinating but also frustrating, I think, that she had to take those on. Yes. Um, um, but, uh, yes, yeah, well, uh, it seems to me that uh, the way we train our successors, which is how we should think of graduate yes. school, <laughs> needs a serious rethink. Yes. Uh, among the many problems that academia faces, and the humanities in particular, this is this is uh, one of many. And I, you know, I mentioned last week the the strike at, at uh, Columbia, which is still going on. So solidarity with the strikers in Columbia, which is in part large part about the kinds of working conditions for PhD students there, where they are. You know, the, the upper Upper West Side is not a cheap place to live, and and they're not getting uh, compensated in ways that that uh, makes that sustainable. So. Okay. Right, on that All note, right, David, cheers. Cheers. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.